Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 19, The Tree of Life. Now this is, uh, this is just scriptural things. And remember that the tree of life, the whole tree of life and the creation sequence in the book of Genesis uh, is, is an allegory. It's not, I mean, there may have been a literal fruit. And certainly there will be a literal fruit, and there was in the Garden of Eden, and there will be again in the millennial age. But those things are also symbolic. So you, if, you, if you're missing out on the symbolism of those things, then you're only getting less than half the story because these things are acted out in specific ways, right? So, so the first instance of that in the scriptures is from Genesis chapter 2. Jehovah God, I think it says the Lord God in the King James. You know, if I use Jehovah, it says, that's what it says in the Hebrew. Uh, the King James says the Lord. Jehovah God planted the garden eastward in Eden. In relation to uh, Palestine, eastward in Eden would be where? We discussed that before. It would be somewhere... East from there, which would be, say, the American continent. And indeed, the prophet Joseph Smith informed us that the Garden of Eden was in the Gulf of Mexico and then was removed from the earth. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, he had already formed the man, and then he put him into this paradisical situation. Because we, too, when we progress spiritually into the millennial age, we ourselves become Adams and Eve and inherit paradise. Adam and Eve inherit the paradise the same way that we do. They have a backstory. They went through progressions to, in order to get that point, and then that became a blessing to them. The same as it becomes a blessing for us in the millennial age. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no respect to a person. You want to do for one what he won't do for the other. So the man whom he had formed, in the book of Isaiah, you have formed, molded, and created, and, and shaped, and so forth. That is recreation. So all creation, in fact, is recreation in Isaiah's theology. So we are constantly being recreated as we ascend the ladder spiritually. We are recreated closer to God's image and likeness until we resemble him precisely. And we keep being recreated and formed. And each time we ascend, we're given a new name and so forth. And this guy's name, our father Adam, is earthling because it's from the Adam is man and Adama is earth and Adam is red. So this is a man who comes from the red earth. He's, he's an earthling. So once he uh, was created, he's created out of the ground. Out of the ground, Jehovah made to grow every tree pleasant to the eyes and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The juxtaposition between those two trees. We'll learn a little more about the tree of life in this particular lecture. So here's the woman who's enticed by the serpent. Now, who's the serpent guy? Because he appears as a man. So, you know, you have to start putting two and two together here. And he gives her of the, of the fruit of the tree of life. I mean, of, the, of good and evil. I mean, the fruit is good for food and pleasant to the eyes. A tree desirable to make one wise or smart or to give one knowledge that they didn't have before. Not, not quite like that. Elsewhere we learn that it's, it's very desirable and delicious to the taste. Well, think, you know, think of the situation here. We have a man and a woman... And what is very desirable and delicious to the taste? I mean, I ask you. So think about that for a minute. And she took its fruit and ate it, and also gave it to her husband who was with her and ate it. What does with her mean? And then Genesis 3, Jehovah said, 
God said, the man has become as one of us, knowing good and evil, because their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, why would they ever suddenly realize that? You know? I hope you're putting two and two together here. We, we, we can read the scriptures and talk a little bit around it, but you have to draw your own conclusions about what all of this imagery is about. The man, Adam, earthling, has become as one of us, knowing good and evil. Good because what he inherited was the blessings of God's covenant. Evil because he transgressed the terms of the covenant, which means that that's the specific definition of those terms in Hebrew theology. As good as a covenant blessing and doing evil is breaking the covenant, so you inherit the covenants, not the blessings, but the curses of the covenant. So now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. There gives you a definition of the tree of life. So if you eat of its fruit, it promises you eternal life. Rather than let the man eat of that fruit and, and live forever in his sins, in his transgression, Jehovah God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. In other words, he descended from a terrestrial state to a telestial state. He had inherited as a covenant blessing through a previous progression this terrestrial state. And now he was banished to a telestial state, to mortality as we are currently. And if you'll dig into the archives, into Wilfred Woodward's diary, the diary, not the biography, and you'll see the backstory of Adam and Eve, who they were, and what awake and arise means, and how that relates to resurrection imagery and so forth. So everybody goes through the same journey to attain exaltation, including Adam and Eve. So think of yourselves as Adam and Eve, and what the situation is all about. So he drove the man out and placed at east of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword. The cherubim are like seraphim. They are on a very high spiritual level. They're also souls. They're also male and female. They're also more likely male in this situation who have ascended to the translated level or a resurrected level, perhaps. They have power over the elements and they can do what these guys are doing. And a flaming sword that turned every direction to keep the way of the tree of life, so they couldn't go there. Now, the tree of life is mentioned a few times in the scriptures, not that much, because most of life's journey is all about just getting there. And more or less the, the lower parts of the journey, that getting from the telestial to the terrestrial and then to the celestial and eventually to a translated state is the highest we can go in this mortality. The writer of Proverbs, who is regarded likely King Solomon, who is very wise, he knew a lot, and so he alludes to things about the tree of life. And again, we have to you know, read between the lines. My son, don't despise the chastening of Jehovah. Well, we read about that last time, whom he loves, he chasteneth, and so forth, in our first lecture. And don't be weary of his correction. For whom Jehovah loves, he corrects, even as a father does a son in whom he delights. To get the son up there where the father is. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. As we see here, what's happening here is that the woman, he describes her as a woman, and the woman exemplifies wisdom far more than the man does because of her intuition. The man, he has lots of knowledge and things, but the woman has to temper him in the application of that knowledge. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, or in other words, a wise woman, 
a man who gains understanding for her merchandise, her merchandise is better than the merchandise of silver and her gain than fine gold. Now, silver and gold are celestial metals that signify celestial category people, too. So are we reaching higher than just celestial? She's more precious than rubies, which is also precious stones that signify celestial categories. And all things you can desire are not to be compared to her. Now, think about this for a moment, because if you had a woman who personified wisdom, and then you had all the merchandise you ever wanted, and all the rubies and silver and gold, what would be your choice? Could you let all that go just for her, right? Length of days is in her right hand. Length of days is a hand that eternal life. And in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Well, that's pretty well a description of a woman, generally, would you say? She is a tree of life to those who lay hold upon her, and happy are those who retain her. It's not always easy to retain her, but when you do, you have her. It's amazing. All right, so take note of the identification between the woman and the tree of life in this scripture. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise, also from Proverbs. So hinting at the tree of life through attaining it through righteousness. And that is compared with winning souls. They're in parallel. Righteousness and winning souls is wise. He's smart. He knows he has a good perspective on life because... He's thinking of eternal things, whereas people of the world are, are thinking of temporal things. And they're going to miss out when they end up on the other side. And then we have from Alma, you know the Alma allegory about faith and the seed and so forth, the nourishing it. And now he also hints at these kinds of things. He said, if you'll nourish the word. Now we're going to see the word, the law, and the commandments in this lecture because they are what makes one righteous, living by God's word, keeping his commandments, which is the law of the covenant. Those things get us to a righteous state so we can partake of the tree of life, of the fruit of the tree of life. So you nourish the word, nourish the tree as it begins to grow by your faith with great diligence, not just casual diligence, because it's so worth it, right? So you apply all your efforts to it. And you don't let go of that focus. You don't get diverted. I mean, we only have a short time here in mortality, so what are we doing getting distracted by this, that, and the other things? No, don't go there. And with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, with an eye of faith, right? It shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up into everlasting life. And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word and nourishing it, that it may take root in you, so you assimilate it, it becomes part of you, it's who you are. You are faith, you are patient, you are diligent, you, are, you personify the word of God to the degree that you live it. That it may take root in you, behold, by and by you shall pluck the fruit thereof. Not immediately. And this is a, I want it now generation, right? You pay money, you get it. Over the counter, wherever. And in the old days, they had to you know, go through all the process of, of getting something to the table. They had to do it all themselves. But we are so spoiled, we can get it now, and that's not how this works. By and by, you shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white. So this is clearly an allusion to the 
tree of life in Lehi's and Nephi's tree of life you know, visions. And pure above all that is pure. Because there can't be any impurity in it whatsoever. If you're still impure or filthy or unclean or tainted or polluted, you'll never get there. You've got it. You have to get pure above all so that you don't, you don't have any thoughts that are impure. You don't have any desires that are impure. You're totally in harmony with God's plan. It is so self-defeating to, uh, to settle for these lesser things. It is so self-destructive. And when you are that pure, it totally frees you up. It doesn't tempt you anymore. It doesn't, all those lower things don't tempt you anymore. You're above them. It's a happy state to be in. Then you're not addicted to anything. You're not bound. You're not in a state of transgression that holds you in its grip and so forth. And you shall feast upon this fruit even until you are filled. That you hunger not, neither shall you thirst. Now, that is the condition of translated beings. So you, I would say translated beings are the ones who exemplify eating this fruit because translated beings, after that, they don't hunger anymore. They don't thirst anymore. They may eat, but only if they want to or to be sociable or something, you know, or old memories. But we'll get to that in a moment because we'll be reading from Spencer's book, Vengeance of Glory, and see the tree of life that, as he describes it in the New Jerusalem. Proverbs again. Hope deferred makes the heart ache, for when desire is fulfilled, it is a tree of life. What's he talking about? This is Solomon again, right? What is the thing that most makes your heart ache? You tell me. Well, I would say if you're separated from a loved one, uh, when desire is fulfilled, there's a tree of life. So you can put those kind of things together. Whoever despises the word of God, there it is again, the word will be destroyed. Because on the one hand is the word that gets you there to the tree of life. And on the other hand, despising God's word, just passing it off, just assuming it's not that important, or it only means this little thing that you have in mind, and not the deeper layers, something like that. Whoever despises the word of God will be destroyed. When? Well, spiritually, but also in the end time, physically. They won't be around. You've had your chance. There is a cutoff point. You procrastinated the day of your salvation, and now you're going to be caught in the nuclear blast or something like that. But he who fears the commandments will be rewarded because the commandments are the word of God, right? The law. The law of the wise is a fountain of life that eschews the snares of death. So if you are able to drink from the fountain of life, the waters of life, and from the uh, tree of life, the fruit, then it's conquering death. Translated beings have conquered death. And then we have in Revelation, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Whatever he started, his plan of salvation and exaltation, he's going to finish it. He's going to see it through the end. But also there's a correlation between what happened anciently and what happens in the end time. Because all those ancient events repeat themselves in the end time. That's in the Windows book, Prophecy of Isaiah. He who overcomes will inherit all things. All things the Father has, yes. I will be his God and he will be my son. Because then you truly are a son or daughter of God. That is, of the Most High God. And that is the covenant formula, to be, for him to be our God and us to be his son or daughter. That's a personal covenant. And those covenants are conditional first, but when they reach the point where you partake of the waters of life and the tree of life, 
then it's unconditional. It's turned unconditional. You've met every test that he can throw upon you. You've passed the test, and now you are confirmed his son. It's the oath and covenant the father makes after you pass all the tests, not now. It's an unconditional covenant, not, not the covenant we've entered into already, the covenants that are conditional. Revelation 22, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So all of this comes from him, the source. He is the source of, of all. And he does this for us. He offers us the waters of life from himself. It's the very essence of what he is to share these things with us. In the midst of its course, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life that bore 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree being for the healing of the nations, or the Gentiles. So, as we learn later on, when Spencer describes the tree of life in the New Jerusalem, we see that those by the tree of life eat its fruit, and that there are 12 tribes who reside there, or representatives of the 12 tribes, who have attained that spiritual level, and there are others out there still in the world that haven't attained that level, and those leaves are taken from the tree and for the healing of the nations, or the Gentiles. Physical healing, as well as spiritual healing. There will be no more curse, but blessings only, because nobody's transgressing. Death is done away. No more covenant curses, no more ailments, no more afflictions, no more adversity. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will serve Him. What servants? Us? Could be. But there's a specific definition of servants in the Scriptures, as in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Revelation, 144,000 servants, and so forth. And next week we'll be discussing the allegory of the olive tree, so we'll learn more about who these servants are. And his servants will serve him, because in many cases his servants are prevented from serving him, or the people are not ready to receive what the servants minister to them. In that situation, in those days, everybody on that level will be receptive, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, as the 144,000 servants of God, who see the face not only of Christ, but of the Father, because his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no more night, they'll need no candle, nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they will reign forever and ever with him. Blessed are those who keep his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and enter through the gates into the city. And that's what Spencer talks about. It's an amazing asset there in that, that book, Visions of Glory, to learn some of the specifics about the tree of life theme. The spirit and the bride say, come. Do they say, go away? Of course not. They say, come. God always says, come. And let he who hears say, come, come back. He says, they say it to him, and he says, to them. And let he who says, come, whoever will, let him take of the waters of life freely. Now notice the spirit and the bride beckoning you to the waters of life and to the tree of life. Think about that for a moment. Who is it that gives the fruit to Adam? The woman. Think of this always as man and woman who go through this together. The one not without the other. And we'll learn in a minute who the spirit is. Because it's the spirit of Jehovah and is Jehovah. DNC 63. Unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water, springing up into everlasting life. Now, that's alluding to the waters of life, 
but there are mysteries involved. And that's what we're hinting at today, that it does come through keeping his commandments and getting to that point where, like Alma says in Alma 12, 9 through 11, until he knows the mysteries of God, until he knows them in full. So God has the full package there for us to learn and to acquire and to assimilate through our living these things and acting them out. And then we learn. Then our eyes will be open as we live these things because understanding only comes from doing, right? Like the Israelites said to Moses, we will do and we will hear. The word hear is, is also to understand. We will do and with the doing comes the understanding, in other words. Whoever drinks of the water of life that I give him will never thirst, but the water that I give him will be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I think that's what Jesus said to the woman at the well, did he not? So it has to do with Christ. Yes, it comes from the throne of God and the Lamb, but this is the water that he, Christ gives to us. Remember that Christ is the executor of the Father's will. So everything that comes down from God to us is executed through the Son of God, the executor of the Father's will. He implements all the Father's will on the earth, and he implements it with each of us individually. He's in every single detail of our lives. So you can totally depend on him to be there, right there. For us, in any instance. And if we don't realize that, then we're just selling ourselves short. Why don't we realize that and, and, and draw on that power of God that he makes available to us, himself, in his own person. Now we come to Lehi's Tree of Life vision. It's kind of a long read. It came to pass as Nephi speaking, while my father tarried in the wilderness. Now notice it's in the wilderness because when you go into the wilderness, you're no longer the flesh pots of Egypt. You're no longer in the the idols of Babylon. You're just separate in a clean place and up in the mountains or somewhere and you can think. You can think without getting distracted and focus on the things of God more clearly. But he had to go into the wilderness in order to have this dream or vision. If he hadn't left Jerusalem, he would not have had this. He spoke to us saying, hold up, dream the dream or in other words, seen a vision. Well, there are dream visions and there are dreams are like visions or candy if they're a special kind. And behold, because of the thing which I have seen, I have reason to rejoice in the Lord because of Nephi and also of Sam, for I have reason to suppose that they and also many of their seed or offspring will be saved. But behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you, for behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. Well, that's not too hard to imagine. We can compare this lone and dreary world as a, the celestial world as a dark and dreary wilderness. Certainly some parts of it are pretty dark and pretty dreary. And it came to pass that I saw a man, he was dressed in a white robe, in other words, an angel or messenger, and he came and stood before me, and it came to pass that he spake unto me, and this is a classic pattern of, of visions, visionaries. The angel comes and gives them a little tour of things, and that's, of course, what, what Spencer experienced in his visions, and bade me follow him. Now, if he hadn't followed him, of course, the rest wouldn't have happened. It came to pass that as I followed him, I beheld myself that it was in a dark and dreary waste. And after I traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. Now notice the transition here from a telestial state to a state of, there's something more than this to life, right? This telestial misery. So he prays to the Lord. Well, how does he know about the Lord? How do people who are born into a celestial world who never heard the gospel, how do they know about the Lord? 
Well, if they begin to diligently seek the truth and live the truth that they have, eventually they will find the Lord. He'll lead them to it. But praying to the Lord is different from just wandering in the wilderness aimlessly. So that he would have mercy on me because he knew the tender mercies of God. So it came to pass after I prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field. And it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. That's what it's all about. Eternal happiness. They live happily ever after. Have you heard that before? And it came to pass that I go forth and partake of the fruit thereof. And I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I ever tasted before. And I beheld that the fruit thereof was white to exceed all the whiteness that I ever seen. It was very desirable to make one happy. And what's this large and spacious field? Well, there are different degrees of glory. And, you know, there's the lower celestial and there's higher celestial, even in the celestial world. Living here in Utah, for example, is different than living in other places of the world, right? Or living in America is different from living in some other country. So it's like he, he's progressing. He's calling upon God for help, and he get, then he gets the help, and then and finally he arrives at the tree. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceeding great joy. That is the ultimate goal, is that you may be filled with joy, that your joy may be full. How often do you hear the Savior say that? As his joy is full, and he wants to share that joy with us. So he gives us all these means and steps to get there. Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable about all other fruit. As I cast my eyes round about that perhaps I might discover my family also, I beheld a river of water, and it ran along, and was near the tree of which I was partaking of the fruit, and I also looked to behold from whence it came. And I saw the head thereof a little way off, and the head thereof, at the head I beheld your mother, Sarai and Sam and Nephi, and they stood as if they knew not where to go. And it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and also did say unto them with a loud voice. Why a loud voice? Suppose they're further away? Because we have to declare the gospel to people. And when we become valiant in the testimony of Jesus, raise your voice mightily, you know, the Lord says to, to the Jacob-Israel category, which is a covenant people, in chapter 40 of Isaiah, raise your voice mightily. You've progressed this far. The Lord just delivered you from those Assyrians and showed you his signs and wonders and now raise your voice mightily to the rest of the people. Tell them all about it. So they too can come partake of the Lord's deliverance. That they should come to me and partake of the fruit which was desirable above all other fruit. Yeah, we get that. Do we really though? But he's repeating it several times. That it is so desirable that we want to give up everything else for it. And that's what Spencer's group had to do ultimately. Had to give everything up for that. And he to pass that they would come to me and partake of the fruit also came to pass that I was desirous, you know, it came to pass. One, two, three, four, five words in English. In Hebrew, it's just one letter. It's one letter. Vav. Consecutive vav. That I was desirous that Lamel Lamel should come and partake of the fruit also, wherefore I did cast my eyes toward the head of the river, that perhaps I might see them. It came to pass that I saw them, but they would not come unto me and partake of the fruit. And I beheld a rod of iron and extended along the bank of the river. They did not even get started holding fast to the rod of iron. Lame Nemo. They headed straight for that great and spacious building. How did they go so far astray? How did they have that mindset from, from the get-go? Right? There's something to ponder. Because there are different spirits that come into mortality, some on higher spiritual levels and some on lower. And some on lower 
provide opposition to those higher, as Lamb and Lemuel did, to Nephi and Sam, because we progressed through rising above opposition. I beheld a rod of iron and extended along the bank of the river and led to the tree by which I stood. I also beheld a straight and narrow path which came along by the rod of iron even to the tree by which I stood. Now we also see that straight and narrow path in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? Straight is the gate and narrow the way that leads to eternal life, he says, and few there be who find it. Few there be who find it. You really have to exert yourselves to find it your mind, your intelligence, to even discover what it is. It's not just the big good gospel I'm telling you. It's not just salvation. The, the path to exaltation is extremely straight and narrow. It is fraught with hazards, extreme hazards, with huge paradoxes. The further you progress spiritually, the greater the paradoxes become. And that's what we see here in this allegory. And it also led <clears throat> by the head of the fountain, and to a large and spacious field as it had been a world. So we're in this world now, and can we say that we have reached a tree of life? I don't think so. Just because we have a testimony of the gospel and are living it to the best of our knowledge in no way means that we have actually arrived at the tree of life. We're not translated yet. And I saw numberless concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward that they might obtain the path which led unto the tree by which I stood. So some people are getting it, learning about it, they're excited to go, and they're pressing forward to obtain the path. They haven't even come to the path yet. And when you are baptized, right, and receive a remission of your sins, as Alma and others tell us, you're just on the path. That's just got you started on the path. After that, you have to do this, that, and the other. Keep the commandments, all the commandments, not just some of them. And some of them are hidden and are going to be revealed to you probably personally because look at Nephi and others when they reach that spiritual point on their progression they received commandments directly from God to do things which is part of everyone's journey because we're all the same we all arrive there same path I came to a path that had come forth and commenced in the path led to the tree and there arose a mist of darkness exceeding great mist of darkness what is that? well you have light which is the truth and you have darkness, which is untruth, precepts of men, lies, false opinions, just philosophies of man, all the stuff that's out there in the world that passes for truth or something of worth. And it's just brainwashing. It keeps you occupied. And that's what, where Satan wants you. He wants to keep you in that mist of darkness. Insomuch that they who had commenced the path would lose their way. There was more untruth out there than there is light. And you can believe that's a fact. And they were lost. It came to pass that I beheld others pressing forward, and they came forth and caught hold of the rod of iron, and they did press forward through the mist of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron. So these are really good guys. You might say, Latter-day Saints. They're clinging to the rod. Clinging? You mean they're holding on so tight that they are so literalistic about everything? The letter of the law rather than the spirit? I mean, think about it. There's more going on here. Even until they had come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. Now, were they fully prepared to partake of the fruit of the tree? That's the big question here. Did they really realize what all the commandments, what the commandments of God were all about? And after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they had cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. If the fruit of the tree were just a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you grow ashamed of that? 
Of course not. There's something way more going on than just having a testimony of the gospel. That's why I say the paradoxes get ever greater as you ascend, as you progress spiritually. Um, that's what Elder Maxwell said. The further you progress spiritually, the greater the paradoxes become. And what you thought once can be totally turned, turned around into something else once your eyes are open. You know that. And I cast my eyes round about and beheld on the other side of the river of water a great and spacious building, and it stood, as it were, in the air, high above the earth. Now, we've read some of these scriptures before in our lectures, even recently, but you get the unreality of this place, right? It was filled with people, both old and young. This is a big deception. Male and female, their manner of dress was exceedingly fine. They were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers toward those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. Because to those people in that building, what the people were doing, eating the, the fruit of the tree, was ridiculous. And they felt justified in pointing the finger. And some of them were like the people who had strayed, ended up in the great and spacious building, and were of the self-righteous kind. So some of them could be thinking, well, those guys are evil, and we're the righteous ones. That paradigm, so that they see things back to front, yet they believe they're still of God. Could that be possible? They're so worldly, but they don't realize it. They look down their noses at people who are really a little different. And after they tasted all the fruit, these people were ashamed because of those who were scoffing at them. They fell away into forbidden buds and were lost. Well, why would they give those people any credit at all in the great spacious building? Why would they give them any credit? I mean, they're fallen people, aren't they? Well, it wasn't that simple, obviously. Maybe they were people that they knew once, who were their good friends, or maybe they were people who had authority and things like that, so that they fell into fear and shame for what they had done because of those who were scoffing. And they fell into forbidden paths and were lost. Now, you can see that most everybody is getting lost, right? Somehow, one way or another. So how many does that leave that are actually going to partake of the fruit of the tree and not be ashamed and pass the test of not being ashamed? Because that's going to be a test too. And are you willing to be persecuted to utmost degree for partaking of the fruit and not going to fear and shame? It's not that simple. Now, I if I do not speak all the words of my Father. But to be short in writing... Behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward. They came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron, and they had pressed their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron. They came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. And he also saw other multitudes feeling their way toward that great and spacious building. So there are some multitudes, at least. Some people are going to get it. It came to pass that many were drowned in the depths of the fountain. Many were lost from his view. Who are those people? Why are there these different categories of people? Well, you have celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, and perdition. Wandering strange roads, and great was the multitude that entered into that strange building. Probably the majority. If he talks like that, the majority of people go into the great and spacious building. And after they had entered that building, they had point the finger of scorn at me, and those who were taken of the fruit also, which is, remember, the male-female imagery that we came across in the beginning, but we heeded them not. These are the words of my father, for as many as he to them had fallen away. Now we have Nephi's version of this allegory. It came to pass after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen and believing that the Lord was able to make them known to me. Now how do you get to the point where you actually believe things like that? 
How do you get to that point? I mean, we read the Book of Mormon and see and read these things, and we hear of visions like Spencer's and others. And can you truly say, like, like Nephi, that the Lord could make those things known to you and even show you those things, or some of them, if necessary? Maybe in, in the case of Spencer's visions, it's not necessary that you have the exact replicate of his, of his visions, but there are enough visions and dreams of people out there right now that people are having in the world keep confirming what he sees and verifying it and testifying, providing other witnesses of it, and he can make it known to you personally by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he sat pondering in his heart, caught away in the Spirit of the Lord. So he himself, why is he having the replicate vision? Because in the testimony of two witnesses in the Book of Mormon, so it's important that it's there in the Book of Mormon, not just one person's vision. He's caught away in the Spirit of the Lord, likely as Lehi was, into an exceedingly high mountain. In other words, out of this celestial realm, which I had never before seen, upon which I had never before set my foot. And the Spirit said to me, Behold, what this are. There's the Spirit. Who is this, or what is this Spirit? The Holy Spirit? Speaking in our ear? Read on, because it says who it is. Behold, what desirest thou? And I said, I desire to behold the things which my father saw. And the Spirit said to me, Believest thou that thy father saw the tree of which he spoke? Yes. I know, thou knowest that I believe all the words of my father. And when he had spoken these words, the Spirit cried with a loud voice, saying, Hosanna to the Lord, the Most High God, for he is the God over all the earth, even above all. Now, the Most High God is the Father, okay? And then who is the Spirit? And blessed art thou, Nephi, because thou believest in the Son of the Most High God, wherefore thou shalt behold the things which thou desired. So you see how key that is in believing in the Son of God. And not just believing about him, but believing all you can know about him and having the testimony that he lives, that he's true, that, that he is what he is, all that he represents, that's believing. It's, it's a whole belief, not just a partial belief of him, about him. Because thou believest in the Son of the Most High God, wherefore thou shalt behold the things which thou hast desired. Behold, this thing shall be given unto thee for a sign, that after thou hast beheld the tree which bore the fruit which thy father tasted, Thou shalt behold a man descending out of heaven, and him shall you witness. And after you have witnessed him, you shall bear record that it is the Son of God. So again, he's receiving a personal witness, and he's to be valiant in the testimony of it to others. How important is that? That divides, in DNC 76, celestial people from ones in lower categories. They are celestial category, and others, they are not valiant in the testament of Jesus. I gave you a passage, the Spirit said to me, Look, and I looked, and beheld a tree, it was like unto the tree which my father had seen, and the beauty thereof was far beyond the exceeding of all beauty, and the whiteness thereof would exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. It came to pass, after I had seen the tree, I said unto the Spirit, Behold, I behold, thou hast shown unto me the tree which is precious above all. And he said unto me, What desirest thou? And I said to him, To know the interpretation thereof. For I spake unto him as a man speaketh, for beheld even the form of a man. Nevertheless, I knew that it was the Spirit of the Lord. And he spake unto me as a man speaketh with another. So that Spirit is a man, but he's appearing in the Spirit, the Spirit of a man, the Spirit of the Lord, the Lord's Spirit, 
Jehovah. And they were speaking, you know, one on one. He came to pass that he said to me, Look, and I looked as if to look upon him, and I saw him not. Why doesn't he see him all of a sudden? Because of what it says next. He had gone from my presence. It came to pass that I looked and beheld the great city of Jerusalem and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth. And in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin. And she was exceedingly fair and white. Now, what is this doing right in the middle of this allegory of the tree of life? Right in the middle of it. So it has everything to do with the tree of life, obviously. The woman, the virgin. And it came to pass that I saw the heavens open and the angel came down. So this time it's not the spirit of Jehovah, it's an angel who comes down because Jehovah's gone. And where is he? Came and stood before me and he said unto me, Nephi, what beholdest thou? And I said, A virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And he said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children, nevertheless I do not know the meaning of all things. The condescension of God, because God who was glorified comes down into this celestial sphere. How condescending is that? To man. To lower himself to the level of man, so to speak, so that he might bring about the atonement for transgression of all mankind. And said to me, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. Not as the Christian world out there believes in some strange uh, spiritual manner. And it came to pass that I beheld that she was carried away in the spirit. Now all of these little details here are important. You're getting that, right? And after she had been carried away in the spirit for the space of a time, the angel spake unto me, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the virgin again, bearing a child in her arms. So it was all done naturally, as it were, but in, in higher realms than we're used to. And the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, even the Son of the Eternal Father. That's why he couldn't see him anymore, the Spirit of Jehovah, because he was coming to earth and is born as the Son of God, the child of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? And I answered him, Yes. It's the love of God, which setteth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it is the most desirable above all things. He speak unto me, Yea, and the most joyous to the soul. So it's intended to make one happy. And it is most desirable above all things. And where does this love come from? As we learned in our first lecture, it all emanates from God himself. He's shedding his, his love abroad in the form of grace, in the form of tangible, loving feelings and desire to love others and loving them. It's charity. If you're deprived of it, you're nothing. So we need to nurture the love and, and become perfect in love as well as perfect in faith, which we learned in the first two lectures. Now, there was a comment made about the first two lectures, I'm thinking about it, that they were not like the other lectures that we had in the past about the end time. Fine, but if you're going to survive into the end time, you're going to have to prepare spiritually as well as know about some of these sensational kinds of things, right? More sensational-like things. So that's what I'm trying to accomplish here in these first few lectures is to prepare you spiritually, not just interesting information about details about the call-out or about this, that, and the other, about the nuclear wars, all that's fine. It all is going to happen, but it all comes down to this, really, whether we're spiritually prepared. All those other things will be of no value to us whatsoever if we haven't got this in place, these basic things. So we're after joy, a fullness of joy. Well, hopefully we're after it, 
because it is attainable and the Lord is, is saying come the spirit and the bride say come come and partake why aren't you coming and after he said these words he said to me look and I looked and beheld the son of God going forth among the children of men and I saw many fall down at his feet and worship him because they recognized him and who he was Jehovah it came to pass that I beheld that the rod of iron which my father had seen was the word of God which led to the fountain of living waters, to the tree of life, which waters are a representation of the love of God. And I also beheld the tree of life was a representation of the love of God. And the angel said unto me again, Look and behold the condescension of God. And I looked and beheld the Redeemer of the world, of whom my father had spoken. And I also beheld the prophet who should prepare the way before him. Now, a little later on in this lecture, we're going to see that these things repeat themselves in the end time. Before the tree of life is established on the earth, there's going to be a replay of some of these events where some of these past types and shadows come together. And the Lamb of God went forth and was baptized of him. And after he was baptized, I beheld the heavens open. And the Holy Ghost came down out of heaven and abode upon him in the form of a dove. And I beheld that he went forth ministering unto the people in power and great glory. And the multitudes were gathered together to hear him. And I beheld that they cast him out from among them. And I also beheld 12 others following him. Now notice the reaction to Christ who represents the love of God who represents the waters of life notice the reaction you have on the one hand those who come and partake on the other those who despise and hate him and that's going to play itself out in the end time big time and also beheld the twelve others followed, followed and came to pass that they were carried away in the spirit from before my face and I saw them not it came to pass that the angel spake unto me again saying look and I looked Behold, the heavens opened again, and I saw angels ascending upon the children of men, and they did minister unto them. So, why were they carried away in the spirit, and then he didn't see them? And then the next thing it says is, and angels came down. Is there a connection between those two things? And um, remember those people who were caught up to Enoch's Zion, and the people of Melchizedek, I think it was, and they were caught up with the Zion, celestial Zion, and the next thing it says, and then he saw angels coming down and ministering to the children of men. Do you think there's a connection there between those two things? And he spake unto me again, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the Lamb of God going forth among the children of men, and I beheld multitudes of people who were sick, afflicted, with all manner of diseases, with devils, unclean spirits, all those things we can't talk about today. And the angels spake and showed me all those things to me, and I, they were healed by the power of the Lamb, and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. How do you do that, by the way? And he cast out devils. He said, get you hence Satan? There's a little more to it than that. You can also be kind, right? In a kinder way. Although some will want to tolerate kindness, but yeah, then you could probably come out. But you also have to have power over them. You have, to have no, you have to know you have power over them. Otherwise, you're just wasting your breath in some of them. And some will not be cast out except by prayer and fasting. Remember that in the New Testament? It came to pass that the angel spake to me again, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the Lamb of God, and he was taken by the people, the Son of the everlasting God, who was judge of the world. And I saw him bear record. And I, Nephi, saw that he was lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. So all of this has to do with the tree of life, the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, the woman who gives birth to him, his twelve apostles who fulfill their role and then move on to the next phase. And after he was slain, I saw multitudes of the earth, and they were gathered together to fight 
against the apostles who left. Which apostles? Because those ones left, but this is an end time scenario. Well, actually you have it, as you'll see in a little while, you have it in the Nephite history as well. You have it repeated there. But basically, the great destruction, when the whore Babylon fights against the twelve apostles of the Lamb, it's an end time scenario. And who are the twelve apostles of the Lamb? Is it the current twelve apostles that we have today? It doesn't say that. They might be. It could be. But it'll certainly be twelve who are twelve at that time. For thus were the twelve called by the angel of the Lord, and the multitude of the earth was gathered together, and I beheld that they were in a large spacious building, like unto the building which my father saw, and the angel of the Lord spake to me again, saying, Behold the world and the wisdom thereof. So the world has its wisdom. You see it everywhere. You see it in, in the media. You see it on the internet. You see it in the schools. You see it in the universities. The world and its wisdom is everywhere, indoctrinating us, brainwashing us. So be careful of this worldly wisdom in case you might be, you know, find yourself in that great and spacious building if you adhere to those things believe them behold the house of Israel because it says that the house of Israel has gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb not just the Gentiles or the heathen but God's covenant people so they got it wrong how did they buy into getting it wrong in the end time and it came to pass that I saw a bare record that the great and spacious building was the pride of the world and it fell it's like Babylon Falls. Babylon is the equivalent of the great and spacious building. It has everything you want. All the pleasures of life, but it's all immoral, all impure, all unclean, all under condemnation. And it fell, and the fall thereof is exceeding great. When Babylon the great has fallen, the fall thereof is exceeding great in the end time, before the coming of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord spake unto me again, saying, Thus shall be the destruction of all nations, kindred's tongue, the people that fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb in the end time. We'll just read John 19. Now I think of the cross of Jesus, who was standing there was his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene, the three Marys. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her as his own. So there again you have, you have what, what Nephi saw in his vision where, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave birth to him and he was slain and nailed upon a cross. And here it is. The cross is like a tree of life here. This is the condescension of God. This is the love of God that sheds itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. This is in, the enactment of it. And who's there? John the Revelator, a translated being, Jesus' mother Mary, whom the Catholic Church says was assumed into heaven, also translated, and her sister married the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. Now, you know, whether Mary Magdalene was translated or not, I do not know, but who are these people? These, these people who are at this symbolic tree of life, the wood, he was nailed to the cross, which is like a tree, he's nailed to the tree. Um, why couldn't it have been a, a metal post or something? Why was it a tree? And these people are on the highest spiritual level and they're standing there. And then Jesus says, Woman, he didn't say mommy or mother, Woman, behold your son. Look, John. Is it just John? Is, is it just because John is going to now take care of her? But I don't think so. It's way more than that. 
there's something here symbolic about the woman and the son. It's almost like he takes Christ's place. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her as his own. And tradition says that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, tarried with the apostles after Jesus was ascended to heaven and was one of the chief sources of their instruction because she knew more than they did. So she continues ministering to them. So there's something about the ministry of the woman to the man or to the, that is extremely important here. And when, when end-time women, sisters in Christ, realize what that is and what their role is, then I think the tree of life will again blossom and take root in the earth. Okay, it came to pass that the angel said unto me, this First Nephi 12, Look and behold thy seed, offspring, and also the seed of thy brethren. I looked and beheld the land of promise. And this is a scenario where these things act themselves out that Lehi and Nephi see in the tree of life, vision. And I beheld multitudes of people, even as it were a number, as many as the sands of the sea. It came to pass that I beheld multitudes gathered together to battle, one against the other, and I beheld wars and rumors of wars and great slaughters with the sword among my people. It came to pass that I beheld many generations passed away after the manner of wars and contentions and all in the land, and I beheld many cities, yea, even that I did not number them. So this must be a wonderful you know, fulfillment how a man has, is hinting at the idea of posterity as numerous as the sands of the sea, which were the, the blessing, the covenant blessings of the covenant of Abraham, and here Lehi and Nephi are receiving those covenant blessings. But then, it, you know, a tragedy strikes. Not everything goes well. It came to pass that I saw a mist of darkness on the face of the land of promise, and lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and all manner of tumultuous noises. And I saw that the earth and the rocks that they rent, I saw mountains tumbling to pieces, I saw the plains of the earth that they were broken up. And I saw many cities that were sunk, and many that they were burned with fire, and I saw many that had tumbled to the earth because of the quakings thereof. And it came to pass, after I saw these things, I saw the vapor of darkness that had passed from off the face of the earth, and behold, I saw multitudes that had not fallen because of the great and terrible judgments of the Lord. So we have, we have basically kind of a situation in history coming to a head, and some people get exceedingly wicked, and some get exceedingly righteous, and those righteous are the ones who survive into their golden age, into the Nephi golden age, which begins with the coming of the Lord to the Nephites. I saw the heavens open and the Lamb of God descending out of heaven, which is a type and shadow of his second coming to us, or to the world in the end time. And he came down and showed himself unto them, and I also saw and bear record that the Holy Ghost fell upon twelve others, and they were ordained of God and chosen. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the twelve disciples of the Lamb who were chosen to minister to thy seed. He said unto me, Thou rememberest the twelve apostles of the Lamb, Behold, there are they who shall judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Wherefore, the twelve ministers of thy seed shall be judged of them, for ye are the house of Israel, and these twelve ministers whom thou beholdest shall judge thy seed. And behold, they are righteous forever, for because of their faith in the Lamb of God, their garments are made white in his blood. Now, of course, there are also the ten tribes. In Eastern Europe, there's records of twelve disciples there, and Jesus appearing to the ten tribes. And then, of course, we have the Gentiles. So we basically have different categories of people, all of whom have appointed to them apostles or ministers or disciples of God, twelve in number. And the angel said unto me, Look, and I looked and beheld three generations pass away in righteousness. So at least there's some good news in this whole story. 
not to mention the individuals all throughout Nephite history and Lamanite history who loved the Lord, kept his commandments, and likely were translated because you go down to Central America and they're finding empty tombs, you know, with all the paraphernalia of bodies, as in Palenque, that, that iconic place that you see in, you know, tourist pictures of Central America. There are graves there, they're open, they're, they're cut into the limestone. It's paraphernalia of body, but no body. Most people were resurrected and they must have been righteous people. Their garments were white, even like unto the Lamb of God. So we become like Him in our purity, in our sanctification, in our righteousness, so that we resemble Him, so that even as you can't tell the difference between the Father and the Son, physically, so to speak, so eventually you'll see no difference between us and the Savior when you reach that degree of righteousness. And Nephi also saw many of the fourth generation who passed away in righteousness. It came to pass that I saw the multitudes of the earth gathered together, and the angel said to me, Behold thy seed, and also the seed of thy brethren. It came to pass that I looked and beheld the people of my seed gathered together in multitudes against the seed of my brethren, and they were gathered together to battle. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the fountain of filthy water which thy father saw, even the river of which he spake, and the depths thereof are the depths of hell. So what category of people do you think that is? Well, compared to the other categories of people that we saw with Babylon, the next lowest category is really perdition. So likely this is a perdition category. The people become murderers and have had the truth and fall into evil and wickedness. And the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil, which is a different category. People are lost, but they're not necessarily perdition, which blindeth the eyes and hardens the hearts of the children of men. So often people don't know that they're being tempted of the devil. They think that these thoughts are their own thoughts, that the devil has put into their minds. But they're choosing them because the angels also project truth and righteousness, and righteous thoughts into our, into our, near our minds, so we can pick up, our antenna can pick them up. But, so it is a choice. And, you know, we call that the natural man or the carnal man. It yields to the temptations of the devil. That's why in, in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord shows us how to pray, lead us not into temptation, because temptation is not good which blindeth the eyes and hardens the hearts of the children of men. Remember the definition of hardening the heart that Nephi gave, of just not simply inquiring for yourself, just assuming something, but not inquiring for yourself. And that was their problem. And leadeth them away into broad roads, the easy roads, the comfort zones, that they perish and are lost. And the large and spacious building which thy father saw is the vain imagination, the pride of the children of men, and a great and terrible gulf divideth them, even the word of the justice of God eternal God, the Messiah, who is the Lamb of God, whom the Holy Ghost beareth record from the beginning of the world until this time, and from this time henceforth and forever. So, if you reject the one, then we go into a justice mode. If we re- reject the word of God, we go into a justice mode, because the covenant curses will overtake us. But if we love the word of God, then there is mercy. The law of mercy can operate in us, because... Christ paid the price of justice on our behalf of all those who repent and believe in him and cleave to him. And while the angels spake these words, I beheld and saw that the seed of my brethren did contend against my seed according to the word of the angel, and because of the pride of my seed and the temptations of the devil, the mists of darkness, I beheld that the seed of my brethren did overpower the people of my seed. It came to pass that I beheld and saw the people of, my, of the seed of my brethren that they had overcome my seed and they went forth in multitudes upon the face of the land, and I saw them gathered together in multitudes, and I saw wars and rumors of wars among them. 
So this is kind of a preview or an enactment of what Nephi, Lehi and Nephi see in their, in their Tree of Life visions. And since the Book of Mormon history is a foreshadowing of end time history, we know that these things are going to be enacted out in our day as well. And then the concluding verse here is, all these things were said and done as my father dwelt in a tent in the valley which he called Lemuel. So that's telling you a whole lot because you have to go out of Babylon eventually in the call out spiritually or wherever the Lord leads you in situations in the end time. Apparently, Spencer chose not to go there. He wanted to serve. And there are others too that, that want to serve and not just run away. It's get away as quickly as you can. They, they're on a higher spiritual level want to serve Heavenly Father's children as long and far as they can. So you might say that dwelling in a tent is a good thing. You can, it's a place where you can receive more inspiration as we had in, a, in an email message of the stake president in, in Washington. It signifies leaving the world behind and just being alone with God there to meditate upon the things of God. Now we have, in Isaiah, we have parallels with the end-time woman, Zion. Remember the importance of the woman here in all of these imageries. The woman and the man are in it together. As long as the man leading and the woman subservient, that's totally back to front. It's, it doesn't work that way. The man will go nowhere. And we see that when Eve is cast out of the garden, and when she transgresses, she's going to be cast out. And so Adam partakes that he can be her savior, her deliverer. The woman really gives birth to the man. In any male-female relationship, it's the woman who gives birth to the man. You can read that in my book, Isaiah Decoded. By empowering him to be her savior and deliverer and that of her children. By creating a safe place and providing for them protecting them. To be a king is to be also a, to be a protector. And that's his role. But without her empowering him to do that, he's just all alone. He doesn't have any role. So she is the initiator of his exaltation because she empowers him to, to live up to the commitments, to those covenants, to be a king and do what kings do. Otherwise, he's not a king. It's not even a prince. And then he becomes her deliverer, and that's what Adam was to Eve. He went with her. He didn't stay behind in paradise and enjoy everything there. And so in the end time, you're going to have the same scenario again, only this time it's from the tree of life. And there are two categories of people, but they're all going to labor. Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave birth to Christ. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. And the woman Zion gives birth to a male child here in the book of Isaiah. But there is also the other category. In the end time, everybody goes into labor. And that says, Oh, Jehovah, in their distress, they remembered you. They were under a covenant curse because they did not respond to the word of God and to his law and the commandments. They poured out silent prayers too late when your chastisements were upon them. As a woman about to give birth cries out from her pangs during labor, so were we at your presence, O Jehovah. We were with child. We have been in labor, but have brought forth only wind or gas. Pretty graphic. 
That's Isaiah for you. He has fun, doesn't he? <laughs> we have not wrought salvation in the earth that the inhabitants of the world might not fall or abort. Because their job was to bring salvation to the world, and they didn't do it. They were not found in the testimony of Jesus, so they have to go somewhere else. Because in Isaiah, there are two women. The one who is currently the wife of Jehovah, and the one who was formerly the wife of Jehovah, who now is received back because she repents. And so he says, the barren woman is the one who was formerly his wife, whom he now receives back into the covenant, and these represent the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, Lehi's descendants, and other ethnic lineages of Israel, who are the natural branches of the house of Israel. And so he says, single barren woman, because they have been barren all these centuries for having rejected the gospel. But in the end time, they get their act together, and they replace the other wife, who's then divorced, the current wife, the Gentiles. Single barren woman who did not give birth out there in exile under God's curse, break into jubilant song, you who are not in labor, the children of the deserted wife, that's her, shall outnumber those of the espoused, says Jehovah, the one who's currently espoused, who's proving unfaithful and untrue to the Lord. As Isaiah also graphically shows, she's consorting with other, <coughs> other you know, consorts. But there are those who are part of Zion. Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. Remember that scripture in the Book of Mormon where those who belonged to the Church of Christ and there were those who professed to belong to the Church of Christ who were really the persecutors of those who belonged to the Church of Christ. So you have these two factions. The one who becomes Zion or help establish Zion among the house of Israel and then the ones who were people of the Lord and then he, they just lost it. They were in the spacious building or they were groping along the rod, and they became ashamed after partaking of the fruit or something. The mist of darkness overcame them. We really are living in hairy times, guys, and this is telling you so much and how the majority of people are just not going to get there. Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her deal overtakes her, she delivers a son or a male child. Who has heard the like or seen such things? Can the earth labor by the day and the nation be born at once? So once the son is born, then the nation of Israel is born. We covered that in a previous lecture, a previous series, because the servant who's born and he prepares the way for the coming of the Lord among the house of Israel, the house of Israel that now converts and becomes a new nation of God's people called Zion. And when that Zion is established, then the Lord can come in the second coming. For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth, says Jehovah, when it is I who caused the birth, shall I hinder it? Why does he say that? Because some people are trying to hinder it. In the name of God, they're trying to hinder it at that point in time. And he's saying, no, I did this. This is my work. This is my baby. You are my people. But there's going to be opposition from those who are not of the church of God, but they were the persecutors. That's all through Isaiah. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all who love her, with some don't love her. Rejoin in her celebration, all who mourn for her. From now on, nurse contentedly at her consoling breasts, Draw at your pleasure from the abundance of your bosom. And this kind of imagery of birth and, and marriage is so prevalent in the book of Isaiah. And then from the book of Revelation, we have this also, which we also covered in the previous, but here it's in connection with things in the end time repeating themselves in connection with the tree of life. The role of the woman giving birth as Mary gave birth to Christ. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. You know, this is the woman Zion 
with a crown of 12 stars on her head. So this is the people who are reaching Zion. Being with child, she cried out, travailing in birth, the pain to be delivered. It's called the birth pangs of the Messiah. It's a time period before the coming of the Lord when everybody goes into labor. Even Babylon goes into labor, but doesn't bring forth anything. So she brings forth the deliverer. And the deliverer is like the latter-day Enoch, who establishes the Zion. And there was another wonder in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And we'll talk about him in, another, in a future time. And his tail is identified as Satan, but the dragon is also the pharaoh king of Egypt. So we'll cover that a little later. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Well, we know that that was kind of the war in heaven when a third of the host of heaven fell to earth. But they actually come to earth. All of them come to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered in order to devour her child as soon as it was born. She brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's not what Christ does, but that's the one who does, prepares the way because he also um, participates in the wars or leads the wars against the Antichrist forces of the end time where the armies of God's people, like the armies of the Nephites or the stripping warriors, where they go forth and defend God's people against the armies of tyranny in the end time. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne as the three Nephites were caught up to God's throne and other translated beings where they were empowered and translated and then could come back down to earth as he does after he's marred, he's translated and then healed and then he comes to earth and empowered to fulfill his earthly mission. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they might feed her there a thousand two hundred three score days, three and a half years. So um, this is what's identified with the call out, right? The woman Zion, or the elect of God, go into the wilderness to places that are prepared, where they're safe, protected, in the day of God's judgment upon the earth. And those who lead her there, of course, are on a higher level than just the elect. They would be the translated beings. Like the angel who came and took Lot out of Sodom. Now, Lot was an elect of God. He was a righteous man. But angels who were translated beings or on a higher level than Lot, they came and took Lot out. And so it is in the call out. There are those who go throughout all of the earth and bring out the elect of God to Zion. First to the call out and then to Zion eventually. In Revelation 2, we read the angel, the seven churches, right, represent seven different categories of people in the end time, let's say. And the church of Ephesus was a faithful church. These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know your works and your labor and your patience, and how you can't bear those who are evil. You have tried those who say they're apostles but are not. You have found them to be liars. And you have borne hardships and exercised patience. For my name's sake you, you have labored and not fainted. So works, labor, patience, can't bearing those who are evil, who are lording it over you, and he commends them for that. But they remain true. They don't jump ship. Not at that point in time, anyway. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick out of its place unless you repent. What were the first works? What were the things from which they fell? Your first love. Remember the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. Remember the sacrifices those ancestors made, those pioneer ancestors. They gave up everything in life. 
come and establish Zion here in the wilderness. Huge sacrifices. They made the transition from their dysfunctional states all the way through to a non-dysfunctional state. They were not only forgiven their, their sins, but they expiated their iniquities in the process of doing so, because they gave their all. That was their first love. And their works, their works were attempts to keep all the commandments of God, all the covenants of God, including the law of consecration and so forth. So he, he says here, you've fallen away from that. You've fallen away from the time of when those things were, were in place. You've got to go back and do those first works and let those things become your first love again and pay any price to do it. Sacrifices they did. But this you have, that you loathe the doings of the Nicolaitans, which I also loathe. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, so really, that's where it's at. That's where it has to go. But we have to overcome all the evil of the world currently. As it progresses in its evil, we have to overcome that in order to get there. And what was the, the doings of the, the acts of the Nicolaitans? What was that all about? Well, they were described as um, those, like, like the prophet Balaam, who prophesied for money. They were handsomely paid. And uh, the Lord loathed those things because his apostles were sent out without personal script. And so we have an Acts where Paul says, I know this, that after my departing, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Some are rising even from among you, distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them, not the truth. And that was things that he spoke about the church at Ephesus. And now from Visions of Glory, we have this description by Spencer of the Tree of Life in the New Jerusalem. During the construction of the temple in the New Jerusalem, we had uncovered a natural spring. When we consulted the plans, it was actually marked on the drawings along with designs of, for tapping the water that flowed from it. When the temple was completed, the water flowed from under the temple and out into a beautiful fountain we called the Fountain of Living Waters, just outside of the temple. Near the fountain, a large and magnificent tree stood, which we called the Tree of Life. It had not grown there, but had been transplanted fully grown from a terrestrial sphere. Such a tree had never grown on earth before. Not on this earth, because paradise was not on this earth. Adam and Eve's paradise was not. If it was on this earth, it was taken from it. But likely, it was a terrestrial sphere from which Adam fell to a terrestrial earth, and that the actual terrestrial area was not on the earth itself, if this is true. But if paradise was in the Gulf of Mexico, then it may have been just kind of a secluded area that wasn't on a terrestrial earth, never was, could not be. We just observed it there one day, like all the other living things in Zion, we understood its complete history and everything else about it. Because the moment they saw it, they understood it. It's like Nephi, when he sees the tree of life, he knows that it's the love of God. He begins to realize and feel what it is. In that state of vision, those things just come to you. And so it does here. Until being transplanted into Zion, it had long been a feature of Enoch's city. The tree bore 12 kinds of fruit representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Each type of fruit had a unique healing and sanctifying property, which we used in ways I no longer remember. I do remember looking at the tree for many hours, wondering and marveling that such a perfect living thing could now be on the earth. But remember that the tree is also symbolic of something. It's not just the tree. 
Even the leaves had healing power. If a leaf or fruit was plucked from the tree, it almost immediately grew back. Taking a single leaf and placing it in the soil in another place caused the ground to heal. Thus, vegetation to grow and the area to begin to change into the millennial format, as he calls it. One of the great purposes of the leaves of the tree was to heal the water from the resulting contamination of war and radiation. Just before and after the coming of the Lord, we took many leaves to far-flung <coughs> cities of Zion to begin their transformation into the millennial form and eventually carried them into all the world. The millennial form is really the terrestrial glory. Eating fruit from the tree instantly changed one into the terrestrial or millennial format. We did not guard the tree because no unworthy person could enter Zion or in any way approach the temple and the tree of life unworthily. Those whose eyes were opened so that they could see the things of God and angels saw mighty angels guarding the tree of life just as the Father had commanded in the Garden of Eden. So here we have kind of a reenactment of the Garden of Eden situation. We have people inheriting paradise, you know, in the end time, which tells you something about Adam and Eve, that they must have gone through similar situations to attain paradise as they did. The tree glowed with the glory of Jesus Christ both night and day. It was stunningly beautiful, much more perfect than any tree previously upon the earth. The water from the fountain flowed around the tree, and by doing so, obtained the living properties of the tree. The water was thus healed of its celestial condition, became terrestrial in nature. We built an open aqueduct to take the water down the center of every street in Zion so that every person could freely partake. The channel was slightly raised and built a beautifully carved stone overlaid with gold. We built smaller streams to take the water into gardens and orchards on the far side of the city. When the streams of water reached the edge of Zion, they went underground to nourish the land because those people outside the city were not worthy to, be, to partake of these things. But they, they nevertheless changed the earth from, from below. The water was very different than normal water. It was more clear and delicious. It had a reflective property that caused it to scintillate in the sun. At night, it sparkled and glowed. You know, people who've had near-death experiences go on the other side and see fountains of water, and they're sparkling, and they're singing, and there are many colors that, of colors that we don't have on this earth. At night, it sparkled and glowed. Our prophets read the prophecies to us regarding this spring of water, of which a fragment is found in the last chapter of the Bible, book of Revelation. A similar stream was eventually found in old Jerusalem. God had provided these waters by his power for the perfecting of Zion during the millennium. So we have a, another scenario like this going on among the Jews in old Jerusalem, when it is transformed into Zion. We found out very soon that rubbing a little of it on a wound would heal it in just a few minutes. Drinking it once healed any illness you had. Drinking it several times healed any disease and started to change you. Drinking it for about a week permanently changed you into the millennial condition or a terrestrial state, which was a change similar to translation, but without the spiritual gifts. So you could be a terrestrial person, but not be, yet be translated. Because a translated state is power over the elements, it's the level of the three Nephites, John the Revelator, Alma the Younger, Moses and Elijah, and Enoch, and so forth. So you can have a terrestrial glory in your body, but not the spiritual gift of those per people who ascended further and higher than you did. You became impervious. From then on, your body never aged. You became impervious to sickness or disease. Injuries healed very rapidly. In time, people became impervious to injury and pain. People who were old gradually grew younger looking, and young people stopped aging at about age 30. It was all extremely thrilling and humbling to discover. We partook freely and rejoiced and gave all the glory to Jesus Christ.
because it all emanated from him. And then we have a last section on the marriage supper of the Lamb, and how does that tie into all of this? Because it's all this male-female imagery that has all kinds of relevance. You have to read between the lines and make your own connections. The Lord gives you a lot of imagery and allegories for you to search and live the things that you know, and then your understanding can go deeper, and you can unlayer the deeper layers. Scriptures are so layered, it's not just given to us on a platter. A voice came from the throne from the book of Revelation, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the sound of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. Actually, it's Hallelujah. Hallelujah, which means, um, Hallelujah means to praise, uh, a collective, collective praise. Speaking to a, uh, a group of people, Hallelujah, praise, a plural, Yah, Jehovah, short for Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and ascribe honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. There it is, again, Lamb and his wife. And to her was granted that she should be attired in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings from God. Well, what is this marriage supper of the Lamb? I mean, is it just his marriage? Or is it other people's marriage? Or who's there? 144,000 maybe? Are they alone, just guys and not their brides? I mean, ask questions like that and get answered. You have that also in Isaiah. In this mountain, that is Zion, or the New Jerusalem, will Jehovah of hosts prepare a sumptuous feast for all peoples, a feast of unleavened cakes, succulent and delectable, a matured wines well, well refined. In this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the shroud that shrouds all nations, by abolishing death forever. That is the shroud and the veil. When there is no death, there's no veil. And we're immortalized. Now, there's a veil confronting us and we, we can't discern very much. It's like looking through a glass darkly, as Paul talks about. We can kind of discern, we can kind of feel, if we have the gift of discernment, and we can feel where people are at spiritually, but it's hard to judge because you never know what a person's real situation is and background, or what their future is going to be, whether they're going to repent or not. They can be the vilest sinners and become translated beings like Alma the Younger did. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from throughout the earth. Jehovah has spoken. What reproach is that? Because they're looked down upon. And it is the people who are looked down upon most that the Lord exalts. Those who are humiliated, he exalts. And those who exalt themselves, they end up being humiliated. So if you are being reproached by others, that could be a good sign, right? Don't despise it, because the Lord has a plan for you, right? He's chastening you. DNC 58. <clears throat> for this cause I've sent you that you might be obedient, that your hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come, that also you might be honored in laying the foundation. That's what happened on Joseph Smith's day. They laid the foundation. And that's what 
a definition of the great and marvelous work is in comparison to that, the restoration of the House of Israel is what Joseph Smith did was laid the foundation, it was the beginning or the commencement of all this scenario that would follow where eventually the whole thing divides in two. The Gentiles who harden their hearts, who give birth to gases, and the, and the uh, Gentiles who repent become ministers to the house of Israel. And also that you might be honored in laying the foundation and bearing record of the land upon which the sign of God shall stand. Because you have to keep that before you in your mind and believe in it, otherwise it's not going to happen, right? And then when the time comes, you're going to be part and parcel of bringing it about by your commitment in serving God in that day and by honoring your callings in life. And also that a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. A feast of fat things, and we call it, you know, Adam and I Amen, likely is the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've always assumed that. I see no reason that that's not one of the same thing. A feast of fat things, of wine of the lees, well refined, that the earth may know that the mouths of the prophets shall not fail, a supper of the house of the Lord, well prepared, unto which all nations shall be invited. Aha. Uh -huh. First, the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble. Well, who are they? Well, that's us. The invitation is to us. Are we rich and learned? Sure. We think we're learned. We're wise. And after that comes the day of my power, which is the, the day of judgment of, upon the whole earth. When that division comes about and when that reversal of circumstances happens between the poor and the rich and so forth, between the house of Israel and the Gentiles, as we learn next week, the, when the natural branches are grafted back into their own olive tree, and then they bear fruit, which also ties into the tree of life. After that comes the day of my power, and then shall the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the deaf come into the marriage of the Lamb and partake of the supper of the Lord, prepared for the great day to come. Then will the kingdom of heaven be compared to ten virgins who took their lambs and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Well, who do they marry? I mean, what are ten virgins doing? You know, five of them were wise, five foolish, and you see the division. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. The wise took oil in their vessels along with their lamps. They were, they were into preparation. Like Isaiah says, they shall eat the fruits of their own labors in that day. Not feed off somebody else's labors, like you know, the Hollywood version of the three little pigs, you know, kind of thing. Where the one, the clever little, the wise pig feeds all the others. No, he doesn't. Not in the true version, not here. But the wise took oil in their lamps with their vessels along with their lamps, and while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. They all slept and slumbered. That's what we're doing today, sleeping and slumbering. And at midnight, when you least expect it, you want to keep on sleeping, a cry went forth. See, the bridegroom comes. Go out and meet him. Who, who raises that cry, by the way, do you know? A servant, of course, and the 144,000 servants. The angels who are sent forth out into the world. Go out and meet him. Then all those, where? In Zion. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered, not so, in case there won't be enough for us and for you. Instead, go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you don't share, but buying for yourself is not just the Holy Spirit, because you can't buy the Holy Spirit, right? So, there's different levels of interpretation here. And Isaiah says they shall eat the fruits of their own labors. I mean, if they bought something, they would have 
by preparedness items like food and clothing and what the prophets told us in the past to do. And while they went to buy, they tried to get their act together still at the last minute, but then it's too late. They procrastinated the day of their salvation. The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterwards, the other virgins came also and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, of a truth, or verily, I say unto you, I don't know you. Well, you don't know me. To not know is to not just know not about him, but to know him personally. Because by then, you have to know him personally. You have to be the elect of God to go into that marriage supper of the Lamb. It's also a covenant term that means that you have a covenant with the Lord. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. It's to... Um, it's a vassal king knows his emperor. And he, if you speak to the Lord through the veil, eventually he'll manifest himself to you, right? If you live worthily of it. Watch therefore, for you know not the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. Son of Man, because who's the man there? Heavenly Father, right? Exalted man. DNC 45, in that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived. So those are the two options. Either to have the Holy Spirit for your guide or to be deceived. And who is deceived? Anybody below the celestial kingdom because, because <coughs> if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived, as Jesus said, which means that they cannot be deceived or they would not be the elect, right? So DNC 76 talks about uh, the terrestrial people being deceived by the craftiness of men. So, so only the elect in this situation who cannot be deceived are who have been guided by the Holy Spirit into all truths so that they've figured out all the lies, all the precepts of men, all the popular stuff that's not true, and all the indoctrinations that they have to unlearn and eventually get it right, they're the ones he knows. They're the ones he welcomes into the marriage of the Lamb. Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, like these other guys, but shall abide the day, that is, live on into the millennium. And the earth shall be given to, unto them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation, for the Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. And there's an interesting dynamic because the whole thing changes then from commandments and regulations and rules and precepts to just knowing, living in love and in faith with God. It's a whole different dynamic than we experience today. We don't need people to tell us or to correct us or anything. We all know. Then shall you be a crown of glory in the hand of Jehovah, a royal diadem in the palm of our God. You shall no more be called the forsaken one, nor your land referred to as desolate. You shall known as her in whom I delight, and your land considered espoused. For Jehovah shall delight in you, and your land shall be espoused, as a young man weds a virgin, so shall your sons wed you. So there's more to this marriage supper of the lamb than appears, right? Or as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Yes, there is the collective woman Zion, but there also, she also represents individual sisters or individual women, mothers and wives, spouses. All have to perform in this situation, otherwise nothing will happen. The women are the great initiators, it's like Eve giving the fruit to Adam. And when women learn their role, watch out, because then Zion will form. <laughs> this concludes Lecture 19, The Tree of Life. 
Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.